The following audio is from White River Christian Church. More information about White River is available on the WRCC mobile app or at wrcc.org. Well, good morning. I have an issue I need your help with. I need to know if I am alone or uh, if I have some sympathy here if you deal with the same problem that I do. Uh, Have you ever sat down at the end of the day, you know, for me with my wife Katie, we just need to relax and we're going to watch something, whether it's a TV show or a movie or something, and then you go from Netflix to Hulu to Disney to the next thing to Amazon to live TV, whatever is on live TV these days, and uh, you intend to spend your whole evening like watching something, but you spent the whole night trying to find something to watch, and then that was it. Is anybody else out there with me? Okay, I'm not alone. I'm not crazy. So I already have this bad reputation where I fall asleep, you know, with whatever we watch anyways, so why was I involved in the choice? Okay. (laughs) And I may have fallen asleep a time or two in the choosing, okay? So I just needed to get that out there today. Um, Well, today we are continuing a new series called Miracles. We are looking at the miracles of Jesus, specifically the miracles told by his really good friend, John. One of Jesus' best friends during his earthly life, John, wrote a book that we get to read, and he recorded a number of miracles, and that's what this series is all about. And as we get to the book of John, you can go to the book of John today. We will be there all morning. I actually want to look at the very last verse before we jump in today, and that's John 21, 25. And this is what John says kind of a summary of Jesus' life. He says, Jesus did many other things. If they were all written down, I suppose the whole world could not contain the books that would be written. (laughs) That's quite a statement. That's quite a claim that John is saying he had way more content to filter than we do as we're trying to figure out which TV show we're trying to think through, okay? That John had enough content that could fill the whole world in all of its libraries with just the things that Jesus did in three short years. Isn't that amazing? That that is how John had to think through this. And for me, what that makes me think is, What we have here is precious. What we have here is so intentional. It's very specific, and we need to pay very close attention to what is included and what's not included, because the whole world could not contain the volumes that were left out. So go back to John chapter 2 with me, because we're going to be reading about the very first miracle The first miracle that Jesus did, the entrance, so to speak, where Jesus unveiled who he really is, where he unveiled his supernatural powers. You know, last week, Fred talked about in John chapter one, how in the beginning shows us how Jesus was there. He was the word with which the father used to create the whole world and that he is supernatural but he's also personal because he put on flesh and came here to be with you and I. 
So he's there at creation, supernatural, transcendent, yet Jesus is imminent. He is far and bigger than we ever thought, yet closer. He is totally other than us. We could never be like him, yet he became like us. There's all these paradoxes that John is holding as he records the life of Jesus. And so as we read about this first miracle, surely, if you're like me, you are expecting Jesus to unveil himself in a very magnificent way, that he's just going to wow us with his creative and magnificent power, that that is how he's going to burst onto the scene. So are you ready to hear this first miracle? So John 2 verse 1 begins this way. John says, the next day, We read out of the NLT here at White River, and some of you may have some other English translations that say the third day. It's referring to what was happening at the end of chapter one, where Jesus was baptized, and this is three days after that. Um, Here, the next day refers to that Jesus just picked up some guys, some stragglers that started following him and wanted to learn from him. And my favorite is, of course, Andrew. So you can read about Andrew at the end of John chapter 1. He's a good guy, loves Jesus, and um, he's there with Jesus the next day. So the next day, there was a wedding celebration. There's a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there, Mary. And Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. So there's a wedding. And there's some very important context here for us to kind of get our mind around where we are, what's going on as we jump in here. So Cana in Galilee, that is where Jesus is choosing to do his first miracle. Now, some of you may have heard of Nazareth. That's where Jesus grew up. You may have heard of Bethlehem. That's where Jesus was born. You maybe have heard of Galilee. All those places are real places. You could go visit any of those places. And even Galilee itself, kind of a country place, insignificant space in a small country, Israel. Those are all small. Cana doesn't even exist anymore. It's like a speck on a map. It's a small town of small towns. And so to all my friends up in Arcadia and the remnant, um, Arcadia, maybe even Atlanta, Indiana, bustling metropolises compared to Cana of Galilee, okay? So it is a small town. And anyone from a small town, if you're from a small town, you know this. Everyone knows everybody. Everyone is connected. Everyone knows everyone's business. Everyone knows what's happening over here and over there. And especially if there was a wedding happening in this tiny town, you bet everybody would know. And so we can be sure to assume that since Mary and Jesus and all of his disciples were invited, they know this bride and this groom. And everybody in town knows what's happening. This is a big deal to Cana, not so much to the rest of the world, okay? So that's what we need to keep in our mind here. We also need to be aware that in first century uh, Jewish weddings, they were a little different than our weddings. They would have a reception, a party, that would essentially last a whole week. Okay, so those were big parties and they were demonstrations that the groom really was who he says he was. 
that, that he could provide for his bride. And just like any father out there today who has a daughter and you give your daughter away, it's kind of always in the back of your mind, like, is this guy really who he says he is? Is he really going to provide for my daughter? And so that was kind of all there as this was taking place. And it would take place after a year-long engagement, and then they have this wedding and celebration. And so that is where we find ourselves when we get to verse 3. The wine supply ran out during the festivities. So Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. So here's the problem. Remember, Jesus, the creator of the universe, has come into the world to unveil his glory, his magnificence, and his power. And he is here to solve all of our problems, to break the power of sin and death. And we get to see his power fixing the wine problem. Is that ironic to anybody else? Does this really feel like the entrance that you would expect for Jesus into the world? To unveil who he really is, to prove who he really is. Wouldn't he want to do something in Jerusalem, at least? I would have picked Rome, personally. And I probably um, would do something very powerful and solve some significant issues. But Jesus has a problem on his hands that has just been passed to him by his mother. Okay? (laughs) This is where Jesus enters the scene. We don't have enough wine. And you got to love verse (laughs) 4. Jesus says this. Dear woman, that's not our problem. (laughs) Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. So we got a couple problems. The wine ran out, and Jesus understands that's not his problem. He's got a lot of other stuff that he has to deal with. There's a lot of other reasons he came to earth. I don't think this is the top of the list. But Mary was concerned. It was a problem to her. And we don't really know why. We don't know her involvement in this wedding. We can assume, again, that she knows this couple. I don't know if she has a role in planning it or what. We we know she's involved and she knows there's a problem. And either way, she turns to Jesus. She goes to the person that she knows who has a heart for other people. Remember, Jesus hasn't done anything miraculous in his life to this point. She's not probably expecting a miracle. Mary goes to Jesus, probably because she always goes to Jesus. I have a suspicion that Jesus was a pretty good problem solver around the house, and so Mary went to her oldest son quite often with whatever problems popped up, right? He, he was probably the best problem solver there was. But here, so she just goes to him, She has no idea what he's going to do. It's just Mary sees the problem, and what does she do? She takes the problems to Jesus. Seems like a pretty good plan, except when Jesus says, that's not our problem. (laughs) So what is he going to do? What is he going to do? Is he going to provide? Well, we'll see. Verse 5, and you love this audacity. His mother told the servants, Do whatever he tells you to do. (laughs) Even though Jesus said that's not our problem, Mary, in all faith, says, 
Do what he tells you to do. That's pretty amazing. Mary says, follow Jesus. He will help us. He, I would imagine, always helps. She knows him. She leans on him. She's depending on him. And so what happens? Verse six tells us that standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing, and each one could hold 20 to 30 gallons. I hope you have been observant and you've noticed that I brought some props here with me today. I've got a stone jar. It's not meant to be an exact replica, hopefully to give you just a little idea of the size of the jars we're talking about. So this, uh, again, not a perfect Jewish replica of first century pottery, but about 20 gallons. That's a lot, 20 to 30 gallons, and then six of those means you've got 120, 180 roughly gallons that you could hold. That's a lot, okay? So what is Jesus going to do? We see here these notes are very important, that these jars were used for Jewish ceremonial hand washing. And I want to emphasize the ceremonial part of the hand washing for a second, because Israel is in the first century. This is before plumbing, friends. This is before running water. This is before sewer systems, okay? Water wasn't everyone's best friend as far as safety goes, okay? And what the Jews did, they cared a lot about the Old Testament, things that it said about being clean and unclean. And so they tried their best to follow it, but they added rules to the Old Testament to try to follow what God says and all of their good intentions. And so these jars were there because you're in Israel and they were there so that the people could ceremonially wash their hands because that water wouldn't really have been clean. They would dip their hands in ceremonially wash their hands, right? They would ceremonially wash the dishes. And um, I think that my two boys got the Jewish memo and they like to ceremonially wash their hands and maybe not actually wash their hands, if you follow me. (laughs) So Jesus is there. There's six stone jars in the room. What happens next? Verse seven, Jesus steps into action. He says, fill the jars with water. And when the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So he says, fill them with water. Fill it with water. Dip it out and take it to the master of ceremonies. And so the servants followed his instructions. And when the master of ceremony tasted the water that was now wine, Wait a second, did I miss something there? Jesus said, fill the jar with water and now there's wine in here. What catches my attention is not that Jesus is capable. You know, I've read the scriptures. Jesus is capable of doing anything with whatever is in that jar. What's interesting to me is that John doesn't really tell us The miracle itself, the very first miracle we get to see Jesus do, he doesn't even draw attention to it. He says, fill it with water and then dip it in. Jesus couldn't even manage to go, boom, wine. Check it out, guys. 
He couldn't even pull a crummy magic trick like me. I actually have two cups in here, and this is Kool-Aid, if you're wondering. (laughs) It's almost like John hides it. It's almost like Jesus hides it. I don't even know when it happened. Did the miracle happen in the white space between verse 7 and 8 in the space bar? Or maybe in the space bar between verse 8 and 9? I don't know when this miracle happened, but this is Jesus' first miracle, and it's like it's not that important. He just kind of did it and wanted to make sure that the master of ceremonies and the groom got the wine. Isn't that fascinating? It is to me. And so the master of ceremonies is there, not knowing, verse 9 says, where it came from. Jesus hid the miracle so well, he didn't even know who was responsible for this miracle. But then it says, though, of course, the servants knew, they poured water into the jars. And in verse 7, the Greek actually helps us understand that Jesus didn't pull any funny business, that when it says it f- he filled the jars with water, filling to the brim, like Jesus' instruction was fill it all the way so that you will know that it is full of only water. Because what they would do, uh, because of the issues with the water and the cleanliness, they would add wine to the water to disinfect it, you know, with the alcohol. And so the water that they would have would be either be like one-third wine, that'd be good stuff, or like one-tenth wine. No thanks, I don't want that stuff. <laughs> That's no good. But this was something totally different. There wasn't wine in the bottom of those jars that Jesus just added water to. It was clearly a miracle that was done. And then this master of ceremony says, a host always serves the best wine first. And then when everyone's had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine, but you have kept the best until now. And I think you understand this principle. I think we all follow this principle. If we've ever had someone over to our house and you've made a meal for somebody, you didn't serve your leftovers from the night before (laughs) and then wait to serve your nice warm cooked meal, did you? You didn't, put out the half-eaten dessert from the night before and save the pie. No, you put it out first, and then if you've ever been in that space where it's kind of gone and people are still hungry, then you're searching in the cabinet, oh, here's the half bag of chips, let's get that out there, and then you can heat up some stuff and still feed some people, which I'm sure is like the worst nightmare of grandmas out there everywhere, like running out of food, I tell you, they push food all day, I tell you. But um, it, this is how we think. This is how we think. Of course, we put the best first. And so something happened. Something significant happened. And we do this. But the question remains, why did Jesus do this? He's the son of God. He hasn't unveiled himself. He's still Clark Kent. He hasn't taken off the glasses and put on the cape yet. Why would he do that here where no one would notice him? Keeping it secret. Like I said, I would have gone to Rome. I would have walked on water on the way to Rome and said, check it out. 
I would have made it all about me. But that's not Jesus. Because Jesus is about you. Jesus is about his friends, about his family. He was interested in giving the best wedding present ever. He was concerned that there was a groom that would maybe be embarrassed, that there was a family that would experience shame, that there was a mother who was concerned. And even though maybe it wasn't his time, he said, I'm going to step in. It's not all about him. And so what was the purpose? And John tells us exactly in verse 11, this miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After the wedding, he went to Capernaum for a few days with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. It almost seems like he just wanted to move on because Jesus was interested in serving. Jesus was interested in doing the Lord's business. Jesus was interested in everyone else and not himself. And what John is telling us is that these miracles... And this is the first one. It's, it gives us a pattern for the miracles we will see, that there will be all kinds of problems that people will encounter. And this is just one of them. But then what will the provision be that Jesus will do? And why does he do it? What's the purpose? And we see that there's always a problem. There's always provision and there's always a purpose because Jesus is intentional. So every single miracle, you can see this pattern. But why? This is a miraculous sign. So all the miracles are signs. And John uses that word throughout his gospel. He talks about signs. These miracles are signs. These miracles point. They're billboards. They're telling us who God is and exactly his character and why he would do it. It's not about the magic in the jar. It's important that we believe what happened because I believe it actually happened that sometime in the first century, Jesus turned water into wine because we believe that. But what's more challenging than that is, do we believe the sign? Do we believe the thing that it points to about God? That's way more important for you and I to believe than even that it actually happened. Jesus wants us to believe the things about him that this miracle points to that those are the things that are actually going to be harder for us to believe and accept for our day-to-day -day life than even did this happen 2,000 years ago, yes or no. If I asked you, a lot of you would say, yeah, that happened. But if I asked you right now, do you believe that God is for you? I might get a different percentage of yes or no on that answer. Because I think that is exactly what Jesus is saying. He didn't come into the world to bring the attention on himself. He came into the world to reveal who he really was and who God is. And God loves you. God is for you. And that is exactly what John tells us over and over again. In John 20, verse 30, he summarizes the whole purpose of everything. He says, the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe, so that you will have power and life 
in his name. That's what John wants us to see. That's what God wants us to know. Yes, Jesus can turn water, the molecules of hydrogen and oxygen, and do something with those because he's the creator and get us wine. But it's so much more about what it means about God. And he came to reveal his glory. He came to reveal himself, that he's here for you. And I don't know where you're at. You know, maybe some of you are lifelong Noblesville residents and you're riding high off of the girls' state championship and you're like, yeah, it's easy to believe God's for us today. You know, we're champions. Life is good. God has blessed me. I couldn't be in a better spot. Of course God's for me. High five. But maybe that's not where you're at. Maybe you're in the opposite space or somewhere in the middle where it's hard based on the things that have been going on in your life to believe not just that Jesus turned water into wine, but that God is for me. It's never a coincidence when God asks you to stand up and teach his word and then you're faced with those same things all week. I was faced with this question all week. Do I really believe that God is for me? Do I really believe that God is for the people around me? I've had a tough week. Just a couple days ago, my family and I, we, we remembered the passing of my mom after three years. And I knew this was going to be a tough week. But that question is in front of me. Is God for me? I officiated a funeral this week for someone else. I missed another funeral that I really wanted to go to of a friend that means a lot to me, but I just couldn't get there. I was grieving with another friend who lost his dad a year ago. It was a messy situation. I had to call the police this week on a domestic situation. And that's even before you start watching the news and thinking about the missionaries and our friends in Ukraine. And it's just like, God, are you for us right now? Are you for these people? Are you for me? I know your word says that you are, but are you? And the temptation is to say, I see the problem, but I just don't know if the provision is coming. And then I turn and I read about Mary. She had no history to believe that Jesus would do something miraculous. But she took this problem, didn't try to solve it herself, and said, here. And I'm challenged. I'm challenged by that. And I don't know where you're at today. But that is what is screaming at me in the text today is that it's so much more important that we believe what these miracles say about God. That is what he wants us to come away with as we dig into these miracles because he's going to reveal so many things about who he is 
to us. That he really is. He's there for us. And he's really good. In Exodus chapter 33, when we think about the purpose of these miracles, John said it's to reveal his glory. Well, what is that? Glory is a hard concept to understand. And Moses wrestled with this concept. And in Exodus 33, 18, Moses, in a similar place of doubt, said this, show me your glorious presence, Lord. Verse 19, the Lord replied, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will call out my name, Yahweh, before you. I will show mercy to anyone I choose and I will show compassion on anyone I choose. The spotlight, the signs, the miracles are showing us exactly who God is, that God is good and that he will show mercy, that he will show compassion and he's gonna do it when and if he will. But for us, as we think about all these things, we can say like, wow, that's great that that happened, but what about us? And that's where we find ourselves. We find ourselves in the problem part of the story where we are, that's where we live. We don't know the provision yet. We don't know what God will do. We don't know the reasons why things happen in our life, but we know that God has a track record, that there's a whole gospel that John says, there's a whole library of books that could be written about this Jesus that you should believe in. And the whole purpose is so that you believe in him when those things happen to you. That's the whole point. And that's just this book. There's so much more that's not even written. I brought my journal up here today, not because I'm an amazing journal keeper, but just because for me, when I wrestle with these things and I know I need to turn stuff over to God, I write things down. And this is just the one that I'm in now. I can look back when I'm having a tough day or a tough week and see, wow, God has been faithful to me. He's answered all these prayers in the past and I could even pull off old journals off of my shelf and see God is faithful. He's proven that he's for me. I believe this. I believe it even when it feels like I shouldn't, but I do. And God is for you. He is for me. Let's turn our cares to Jesus today and give them to him because he is for you. Let me pray. God, we come to you in this moment. Maybe we're uncertain about our future, about relationships, about situations in our life, or maybe life is good we turn our issues, our problems, even if we cause them over to you today because you care. You care about the small things. You care about us and you love us. And we may not know how you're gonna provide and we're not guaranteed that you're gonna do it how we want it to happen. But we have a record of your faithfulness and your goodness, which just is a spotlight of your glory. May we tell those stories until you come back again and encourage each other of exactly how you work in our lives. 
be with us as we go from here and help us to turn to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.